You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. This morning, I want to share a message on worshiping Jesus. As I'm writing this message, I, I was like, man, there's this, it seemed, this is such an obvious, simple message. And it feels silly, almost, that uh, I would feel the need to share a message like this. Um, but last year I shared, or last week I shared a quote by, uh, from a message I heard by a man named Corey Russell. He said, the, the greatest problems in, the, in America, they're not a political issue or a social or financial issue or any issue that you can name. Those are not the greatest problems that we face as a country. The, the greatest problem that America has is that the church is bored with Jesus. And even this morning during worship as we were sitting here, you know, I turned 39 this next month on the 14th, so you just want to take a second and write that down. I turned 39, and I felt, man, it's just, I can remember being 20 years old and thinking, 39, that's an eternity away. That's almost 20 years away. And man, it goes fast. And it's easy to lose the fire. It's easy to let the things of life distract you and pull you away from this love that we have for Jesus. I remember being 20 years old as a, a drug addict and alcoholic and suicidal, and I have this experience with Jesus. I'm just so in love with this one who would take away my sin and take away my shame, who would give me a new life, who would call me to something greater than myself. I just couldn't believe it. And so today, even as we're singing those words, thank you, Jesus. There's just a renewed sense of thanks in my heart of, heart of gratitude of thank you for saving me, Jesus. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your body. As, as humans, we have a tendency to reach a certain place and then coast, to ease up. But there's always more with him. And if we keep our eyes focused on him, he won't become boring to us. If this whole thing is boring, we're doing it wrong. But he wants our full attention. He wants your full attention. The Lord is a, he's a bit of a romantic. He wants you to look him in the eyes. I think that's why women love dancing. I know as Pentecostals, dancing is illegal, but... <laughs> um, I think that's why women love dancing. My wife likes to dance, uh, she's got some great moves, and, but I do not like to dance. I do not like to dance at all. And so, but one reason I think women love dancing with the, their husband or, or boyfriend or whoever is that in that moment, as I'm bumbling around, she has my full attention. I'm looking at her dead in the eye saying, please just tell me what to do. I look like a, I look like a fool. I look like an idiot. We dance uh, when, you know, we have little kids, and so they want to dance. And when little kids ask you to dance, you dance whether you want to or not. <laughs> but the Lord wants our full attention, no matter the context, whether it's in a corporate setting like this, whether it's at home with your family, whether you're by yourself, the Lord wants our full attention. And worship is that beautiful place of giving the Lord something beautiful. And so we have been in a, in a place as a church of the Lord renewing what worship is. And 
I believe uh, worldwide, or at least the West, the Lord is, re- is, is bringing us back to what r- worship really is. It's, it's become something else. It's become some, it's gone from something that beautiful and precious and pure that we offer the Lord to just a genre of music on Apple Music or Spotify. Songs written about God, but songs that don't take us into his presence. Songs that, but we don't offer something precious and sacrificial to our king. The Lord desires that we stay connected to the vine. He says that in John 15. If you stay connected to the vine, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing of eternal significance. So it's this idea of abiding, and it doesn't mean that we can stay in our prayer closet all day. It doesn't mean that we can stay here on a Sunday morning and worship for the entire week. We have to go to work. Those are good things. But it, it's learning to abide and stay connected to the Lord. Have your, giving him your attention no matter what you're doing. John G. Lake, one of the heroes of the faith, early on in his life, he said, I learned what it was to work with my hands all day long but then to have this consciousness or giving the Lord my attention and asking the Lord periodically throughout my day, Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying? I mean, imagine all we miss in a day. There's moments as you walk with him that God gives you those, like, those downloads of wisdom or knowledge or, or solutions to a problem. Maybe at work you're just stuck on something. Have you ever asked the Lord, Lord, what's the answer? He knows. Or those times where something just so profound enter your mind, that happens to me, and I, th- I think, well, that's way too profound for me to have come up with that. <laughs> but it had to be from the Lord, and I thank God in those times that I give him my attention or, or those divine appointments that the Lord has set in motion and orchestrated for us that we might impact and influence a life. Or just even those just like beautiful moments that the Lord gives us to enjoy in life that we miss being hurried and busy, distracted. A couple months back, there was a day where it was like a Saturday afternoon and I was laying on the couch. The kids were sitting on me. Caleb was sitting on the floor and we were all just talking. And I had this thought that came into my mind of, let's just turn on, uh, let's just turn on a movie. We're not doing anything. Let's just turn on a movie and and just relax and hang out. But for whatever reason, I think it was the Lord's grace, I just, I didn't say it out loud. I just, it stayed in my mind and I didn't say it. And over the next hour and a half as a family, we just had like the most beautiful moments of talking and laughing <laughs> and just enjoying each other. And after that happened, I thought, I almost missed that. I almost didn't get to have that moment that I'll cherish for, my, for the rest of my life. I almost missed it. But the Lord wants to give us our attention because he wants to give us even more. And one of the aspects of giving our attention here in this context on a Sunday morning is that we might be of one accord. This is a phrase that we see throughout the book of Acts. His people being of one accord. And they're not all rallying each other and say, hey, let's be unified, everyone. Come on, let's be unified. But their, their mind and, and, and hearts are set on Jesus. They're devoted to him. They're devoted to his teachings. They desire him above everything else. And so the, the natural byproduct of that living, that mindset, is 
being of one accord, and then we see the Spirit fall in an even greater measure. So this morning, I want to talk about what it is to worship Jesus. The difference between man-centered worship and Jesus-centered worship. The difference between worship without his presence and worship in his presence. True worship that is guided by the Spirit, that proclaims the truth and leads us into truth. Not fleshly worship that leads us to nowhere except for legalism, religion, or a shallow, powerless gospel. Not worship to suit our own desires conceived in the hearts of men. But worship birthed in a place of purity before the Lord of saying, Lord, we just want you. We just want you. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2. This is not a typical message I I would share because uh, I'll be sharing from two different portions of Scripture. We're going to be comparing and contrast a scene set in John chapter 2. And then you can also open your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. It'll be on the screen behind us, behind me. But we're going to be flipping back and forth. But before we do, let's pray. Jesus, we do, we just want you. We just want you, Lord. We just want you, Jesus. We want a people that are we want to be a people that are so in love with you. That the world is shocked, the world is drawn in by our love for you and our love for one another. Jesus, teach us how to worship you. Teach us how to love you this morning. Take us into the depths of your heart. Give us more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 13. We're going to just, yeah, work our way through both of these portions of Scripture. So this is the story of Jesus clearing the temple. It's not one we share a lot. Or if it is, we maybe use it in the wrong way to justify uh, our tempers. But in verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciple remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I'll stop there for now. Worship without the Lord's presence will become selfish and self-focused. This, the temple, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. He clears the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. And it's, the temple was supposed to be this place that is sacred and holy, but it had become common and fleshly. Throughout the Gospels, you can, 
Notice that Jesus uses the words our father often. But in this particular case, he says my father. And what does he say? He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. In the other, um, in the other instance of him clearing the temple, he says, you've made this into a den of thieves. Not just a place where thieves come and visit once in a while, but a, a place where thieves live. And the leadership has allowed this to take place and have become partakers of it. But you've made this to be a market. This was a place that was supposed to house the presence of God, the physical presence of God. But it had become something like a common market. They normalized the idea, well, we'll just come here. It becomes self-seeking and, and fleshly. And Solomon's temple was a place where the, the Lord's presence um, dwelt. Sometime in the, in the era of the exile, uh, Babylonian exile, the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the presence of God, went missing. And so this is Herod's temple that Herod built not to honor the Lord, but to appease the Jews and to try to win them over. And so most scholars believe that the presence of God didn't even dwell here. And so without his presence, we miss the whole thing. We miss the whole reason for the temple to exist. So when people came for the temple, they were coming from Passover, and they'd come from many miles around. And some would bring their own sacrifice, but some weren't able to have a uh, didn't have the means for a sacrifice, or they would um, bring their sacrifice before the priest and it didn't reach the standard. And so there were these people that came and they said, well, we'll we, we will sell you some, which is, you know, a valid um, answer for this problem. However, what was happening is that they were inflating the prices greatly and profiting off of these people that would come just to offer something to the Lord. They're creating unneeded obstacles and they're profiting off of God's people and God's ways. And then they had the money changers. You couldn't use Roman currency within the temple, so they would have to exchange the money. And they too were inflating the cost and profiting off of people, desiring to come before the Lord and making it difficult. And so Jesus cleansed the temple of hindrances and obstacles, of selfish ambition. And he will do the same in our hearts and in our church if we ask him. You say, God, if there's anything that's, that's hindering somebody from coming to know you, from experiencing the real and living God, well, we don't want to have anything to do with it. The Lord is, is purging the church of celebrity worship within the church, of us being impressed with um, our campaigns and our programs and our buildings and there's nothing wrong with any of those things but without him they are pointless they are meaningless Jesus is the reason for the temple so if you turn over to Revelation chapter 4 we see a very different scene unfolding now I want you to to know that I am quite aware that this is in heaven and so uh but just because something is happening in heaven, don't we, shouldn't we say, Lord, as it, on earth as it is in heaven? We say, we say that a lot. So we look, if this, these are the lyrics of heaven. I think that we should mirror those lyrics here. We have this interesting 
scene unfolding, and we're not going to, we're going to try really hard not to get in the weeds in Revelation here this morning. Um, in verse 8 of Revelation chapter 4, it says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to, the, to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. This is going to sound very silly, but worship that is centered on his presence is centered on him. Does that, that's the most, as I was writing it, I was like, this is the most obvious thing that you could possibly say. Worship that is Jesus-centered is about Jesus. <laughs> and this is the scene that's unfolding in heaven as John. It's quite a contrast from what he wrote about in John 2. We have these interesting creatures, and it says, day and night, day and night, day and night, continually offering worship. If you think our songs sometimes get repetitive, Listen to the song. Listen to the lyrics of heaven. Day and night, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what does the worship, what cause? Well, it says in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. Worship begets more worship. You can feel it here on Sunday when we gather corporately. When we all come into that place of, of being in one accord and unity of heart, it begets even more worship. There's some mornings where it's like, man, we're not coming back from this. This is all that we're going to do. And maybe that's what the Lord wants. But worship begets more worship. And we have these 24 elders, and the Bible doesn't say explicitly who these people are, but it's assume that they're the, the 12 patriarchs of the, the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 apostles. So, Paul, uh, so John could be seeing a heavenly version of himself. It's like kind of a back to the future type situation. <laughs> but what happens is these elders, they come and they lay their crowns before the throne. The crowns represent their reward that they receive for following Jesus and their time here. It's a gift. It also represents authority that they've been given. Any authority that we have as believers is delegated authority. It's not to build our own kingdoms. And that's, what ha that's where we go so wrong as we begin to build our own kingdoms based on the authority that we're given. But it's only delegated authority. And so we're reminding ourselves in the Lord, we lay our crowns before him, the gifts that he's given us, the things that he's rewarded us with, and we give them back to him. We fall on our face before him. These are the most esteemed followers of Jesus. And they are on their face throughout eternity, laying their crowns before him. And who is the object of their worship? You are worthy. You are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. 
He's the only one that's worthy to receive glory. You and I were not meant to receive glory. And even if you're given glory on this earth, I just would counsel you to, you don't have to do it in front of someone else, but to give that glory back to the Lord and understand, Lord, this is only because of you. You are the one who deserves the glory and the honor and the power. Why? Because he created all things. They were his idea. It was by his will that that we even have our being, that we were given the ability to do anything, to attain wealth or to offer something beautiful to someone else. It's only because of him. And so he is the only one who is worthy. So our worship needs to be focused on him. Again, notice the lyrics of their songs in heaven. Contrast them to some of the lyrics that, that we sing in Christian music today. Let's go back to John chapter 2. The story goes on in verse 18. It says, The Jews then responded to Jesus, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, Jesus' disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's stop there. So the Jews, anytime the, the Gospels talks about the Jews, they're talking about the, the leadership. And they start questioning his authority. Who gave you the authority to do this. The problem was is that the fruit of man-centered worship is that when Jesus does appear, they can't see him from a hole in the ground. They miss him. Man-centered worship cannot lead you into truth. The one, this whole thing was supposed to be about was standing right in front of them. And they missed it. When Jesus entered the temple, the presence of God entered the temple. And there they were. You'd say, you're disrupting things. We've got a good system going here, and you're messing it all up. Historians aren't sure when, but sometime after the destruction of Ezekiel's temple, Jews began erecting synagogues in place of the temple. And again, it was kind of a way to get by, but it wasn't God's best. But his synagogues were void of his manifest presence. His presence wasn't there. There was no altar. There was no sacrifice. It was a place where prayer was offered to God and God was taught about, but it was not a place to meet with him. And I begin to ask my question, myself the question, am I a temple of his Holy Spirit, of his presence, or am I a synagogue? Am I a place that I just know all the right things? I've mastered the lingo. I know a lot of things to talk about the Lord and philosophize. But I don't actually house his presence or, or this church where we say a lot of things about him, but it's not a place where his presence dwells. When we worship from the place of, of flesh, 
This is what it's produced. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 6. He says, the spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. The flesh counts for nothing. The flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit who gives life. So we need to be spirit-led people who worship in spirit and in truth, who are aligned and, and, and attuned to the Holy Spirit so that we can be led into the truth of God. Have you ever had those moments where we're singing the songs and you're like, I don't know if I'm feeling this right now. I don't know if I believe this right now. Well, sometimes we, it's the spirit who helps us worship our way into the truth. This is what I need to know. This is the truth of God, what he's saying over my life, what he's saying over this people. But man-centered worship cannot lead us there. Jesus could enter the building, and we wouldn't know. I've been in churches and, and different places, and you, I'm sure you have too, where the Holy Spirit begins to move, but it's not part of the plan. And so we say, not now, God. <laughs> not now. We want, you, we want you here, but just, I mean, just hold it back a little bit. Man-centered worship cannot lead us to truth. We just stand at the gate. So let's go back to Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. You're getting to know your Bible today. That's good. So this scene of Revelation continues. In verse 7 of Revelation chapter 5, it says, He, the Lamb, Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding gold, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The Lord holds on to every single prayer that you pray, even the ones you stopped praying. The Lord holds on to every single prayer. Verse 9, it says, And then they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will go and reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon ten thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. Amen. Jesus centered worship will bring us into alignment with his truth, his ways, and his will. They begin to sing this new song. It's funny, you might have a new song that arises from your heart, and it sounds a lot like another song. He's not talking necessarily about the new hip, cool lyrics of a song. He's talking about this song meaning something unique and special for that season. That Lord, to understand for me now at almost 39 years old, to understand that the Lord is worthy. That as I read this again, it, it says that he is worthy. He's the only one who's worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God 
persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. No longer was it relegated to the select few, but the door was flung wide open for every single person to, to come to Jesus, to come into that holy place face to face with him because of Jesus' blood. And he made us a kingdom of priests, as Hebrews says. So they ask him this question in John chapter 2, well, who gave you the authority to do this? <laughs> Isn't that quite the contrast from what we're reading here in Revelation, where they're, they're seeing the glorified risen Christ before them, and they say, that as they see him, they say, you're the only one who's worthy. There's no one else found worthy. It's only you, Jesus. There's no one else worthy because you were the lamb who was slain. With your blood, you purchased for God's people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then it's the angels. And the angels have a, an interesting part to play because they are not part of the redeemed. We have a, a special and unique part because we know what it's like to be without the Lord. And so then to be with him, there should be this, this unique sense of gratitude because we know what it's like to be without him. And that's really what hell is. Hell is being completely devoid of God, completely apart from him, separated from him. And so the angels, they see what the Lord has done, how the Lord has redeemed his people. And it says thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, that's you know, hundreds of millions of angels, all singing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. He's the only one to receive all power, all wealth, all wisdom, all strength, all glory, all honor, all praise. That envelops everything that we are as human beings. The Lord is the only one who's worthy of it. And if you're willing, Jesus will bring you into this truth. There was a young man that I knew years ago, and his name was Alec, and he was newly given his heart to the Lord. He was in college, and trying to figure things out. And, you know, as people are, are early on in their faith, there's certain things that you, you know, help the Holy Spirit convict them of. <laughs> and certain things that you just allow the Holy Spirit to convict in his time. And it's a good friend. You're a good friend if you, you share with your friend if they're heading down the wrong direction. It's a good thing. But there are times where you allow the Holy Spirit to just wait. And Alec was, he was living and sleeping with his girlfriend and not living in God's best for his life. And one night we were having a night of prayer and worship. And he began to just surrender his, his whole life to the Lord in a new way. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just came upon him. And baptized him in the Holy Spirit. And immediately he knew, I, I need to get out of this relationship. It is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And no one told him that it was wrong. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit that came upon his life in the presence of the Lord. He left that place, broke up with his girlfriend, lived in purity until he found his wife, and now he's married with kids and living for the Lord. Years ago, my wife and I pioneered and planted Chi Alpha at University of Iowa. I know, I'm sorry. And when we first started meeting on campus, if you've ever been there, there's this little tiny 
chapel, Danforth Chapel. It's right next to Union. It's like you'd think it was a shed. It's tiny. Um, it wasn't an ideal place to meet. And we, when we would meet in the winter, there's no, like, entryway. It's just the door to the outside. And so someone would come in late, and all of a sudden, all of the very cold air would just come in, and we would all know anytime someone was late. Had these old hot water heating pipes that would always make this loud bing sound. <laughs> only at, like, the, the, the climax of the message. It only happened then. But the Lord really moved in those days. And it was just a small number of us that met in that, in that little chapel, singing to the Lord, singing our guts out, just me and my acoustic guitar. And God's presence would come as we'd worship him. And one day there was a, a young lady who came, never grew up in the church, never known the Lord or anything, came with a friend. And during worship, I just start hearing these, this, this, this crying sound, this like sobbing sound. I look out and this girl's just head and hands just crying, 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 crying. After the service, I went and talked to her. And she said, I don't know what happened, but during when we were singing those songs, she said, I just started feeling love like I've never felt in my whole life. I've never felt that. What was that? I said, that's the presence of the Lord. He's gifting you the gift of himself, that he loves you. He loves you. She gave her life to Jesus that night. We need his presence. Jesus-centered worship leads us to his truth, his ways, and his will. Back to John, chapter 2, and verse 23. This is one of the sadder portions of Scripture that I have found. So now, in verse 23, it says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem, all the Passover... At the Passover festival, many people saw signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Man-centered worship cannot take us into the depths of Jesus' heart. It's so sad. These people, they loved what Jesus did but they didn't love who he was. And we can be that way as well. They wanted the good parts of him, but not the hard parts of him. Some of these people there that day, these are some of the people that would have been in the crowd for the feeding of the 5,000. Some of them would have been there for Lazarus' resurrection and then on to the triumphal entry, even singing Hosanna, laying the palm branches Some of these same people were, were those who would even call themselves disciples and would desert him when he would give a call to die. They say, we're, we're all going to the cross. Who wants to come with me? And they said, that's a little too far, Jesus. Can't we just do some more miracles? Can't you just heal some more people? That was the exciting stuff. I don't want to have to actually do something that would cost something. Jesus would not entrust himself to them. The beautiful thing is, is that Jesus is so gracious that he still gives of himself, but he won't entrust himself to more. He entrusts himself more to those who just simply love him. So who are those that love him? Do we see that? 
in the Gospels, the place where Jesus rests, where there was a little town called Bethany that Jesus would often go to. He even found himself at different people's houses that were outliers of society, Zacchaeus. He would entrust himself, more of himself, to the disciples. People that wanted him just for him because they loved him. Not because of what they could do, he could do for them. He knows our hearts and motivations matter. Sometimes we can surrender to the Lord just because it, we, we think, if I surrender this thing to the Lord, maybe then I'll get it. That'll be like it's the formula for getting what I want is I'll just surrender it to the Lord and then wait until I get it. But that's not real surrender. Surrender is this place of like, Lord, even if this doesn't turn out the way that I want it to turn out, I'm still giving it to you. Even if I don't get this job or the house or this relationship or whatever it is, Lord, I just want you. I just want you, Lord. Scott, would you come? Here we are. I want us to be a church that Jesus entrusts himself to. That people come into this place and they don't say, wow, that was a great worship band or that was a great message. Pastor had cool shoes. But it was a place where I met the Lord. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what I've needed in my life. The things that happen in our lives that have no other answer but Jesus. So we're selling ourselves short. We're robbing ourselves of an opportunity for him to show up in our lives. That we can know him as the, the worthy one. I'm almost done. Can I have two more minutes? Will you give me two more minutes? It's really five. But if you turn again to Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9 of chapter 7, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Imagine it. Imagine it. A great multitude of people that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, group, language. It's God's heart to draw the nations and they're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out a long, loud voice, singing, Salvation belongs to you, our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, singing, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these 
are they who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne and will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will be down on them. The sun will not be down on them, nor will, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Jesus-centered worship takes us into the depths of his heart. He holds us close. He brings us near. In this scene, there, all of us there, every tribe and nation, we're holding those palm branches just like they were on the tri triumphal entry when Jesus came riding on a donkey, singing Hosanna, salvation. Salvation belongs to you who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. And again, it begets more worship. All the angels fall down on their faces. And then I love this. In verse 13, the elder asks John like he would ever know. But it's this idea, it's one of the ways of the Lord of God inviting us in. He's always inviting us in. He's begging the questions. The Lord asks us questions. And sometimes he asks us questions so we can ask a question back like this. The Lord will ask you a question about your life. Instead of trying to think of the answer, ask him, Lord, what do you think? What do you want? You know, so please just tell me. He says, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. It's up for debate whether they're talking about the great tribulation or just great tribulation. But these are those who are dependent on him. They've washed their robes and made them white as snow in the blood of the lamb. We've overcome. We've overcome. He's drawn us into his heart. In verse 17, it says that the lamb was at the center of the throne and he is their shepherd. And that is who we should be as a people. That the lamb is at the center, Jesus is at the center, and he will be our shepherd. He will be our shepherd. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.